next episode of In Development. My name is Mariah, and this is a podcast for all you city builders, city shapers, and city dwellers out there that care about driving change toward people-centered communities. On In Development, we talk about how Canadian cities develop in and up. We are presented by IDEA, the Infill Development and Edmonton Association, a nonprofit education and advocacy group bringing together like-minded people working to shape our city. Today, we have an amazing guest, uh, and he's not an Edmonton local. He is from Calgary, which, as Edmontonians think, sometimes we're in competition with Calgary, but I think we can get to a spot where Calgary and Edmonton work together to be a super province. Uh, and we go into that in a little bit in today's, in today's episode. So our guest today is Alcrim Devani. He is the co-founder of Round Square. He's also the co-founder and chief strategy officer at Chroma. In addition, he's a board member of Detox and a partner at NHBR Coffee and No Island Cowork, places where his communities maintain the pulse and the needs of Calgarians. He was amazing to talk to, and I love the spaces that he built. Uh, but there's a couple things I found really interesting in today's episode that, you know, you'll hear about more later. But we talked about the need to create accessible and equitable living. And this is a guy who's focused on architecture and design for the past 10 and really five years, like really, really focused. His projects are so beautiful and he's really well known for them. But we still haven't solved the problem of creating accessible and equitable neighborhoods and living. And I know in Edmonton, we talk a lot about the need for great design in buildings and streetscapes, which I think is true. But I think there's something there. Maybe we don't have the foundation of accessible and equitable living. Yeah, I think there's more to design than simply the outside of the building. And I think Round Square in Calgary is a little bit further ahead in that regard. They've conquered that kind of, you know, the building at least looks good. And now they can move on to the next problem, which is um, using design to create more accessible and equitable spaces. But I agree with you. Design might not be the singular focus that we should have, but I would just say that there is more to it than, uh, than simply the way things look. Yeah, I think it's it's both. And I don't know if we've thought about it that way. At least I haven't thought about it that way. But the other thing that we talked a lot about was having your home a retreat and a safe space and then having your neighborhood be the places where you connect with people and use local amenities. And I just think that's so interesting because often we look at buildings and we're like, what amenities does it have if we're going to be moving in if it's multi-unit? So does it have a gym? Does it have bike storage? Does it have the pool or whatever else people get really creative in their amenities but I and I'm biased I grew up in a family that owned a lot of small businesses that were local um I think we maybe need to not think of buildings as mini neighborhoods but as a part of a neighborhood that contributes to the local economy and I know I love my spin classes. They motivate me and they get me in way better shape than if I go to the gym downstairs. And for the past year and a half, I've gone to the gym downstairs twice. And that's like a really bad use rate. (laughs) Terrible. I've gone to spin more times at a class in the pandemic than I have in my own apartment building. I agree with you. I think that's really interesting because uh, we do look at buildings um, in terms of amenity spaces. And a lot of that 
I shouldn't say a lot of that. A part of that comes from it's a requirement, uh, especially towers and larger scale developments. There's a requirement to provide amenity space. The details of what that amenity space is, is a little bit loose, but that's why you're seeing a lot of the same thing being built on every property. So I kind of agree with you that building off of what's already in the neighborhood makes a lot more sense. So if you're building a development in a neighborhood that already has a great gym or a gym or bike storage or some some type of amenity that you typically see maybe just you know use that in your market in your marketing campaigns instead of putting it uh, in your building and kind of duplicating everything and, and creating that redundancy so i i definitely agree with you that um that we should be looking at what's already existing yeah i think we need to start looking at it at a broader scale and also like the amenity space that i have in my building has changed from a, a larger gym, but it was a like rec space and an AGM meeting room that was zero used, 0% usage before. And that's why we changed it four years ago and it's barely been used since. So I, I there was a, there was a shortage of uh, workout supplies at the start of the pandemic. Maybe it's because of all these gyms that are getting built in every single building. Who knows? Uh, we'll go into definitions and then uh, jump into the episode here. But before that, there was something that Alcrim said right at the end of the interview that I found really interesting. He said he likes talking up other builders and other architects and name dropping and that kind of thing, which is kind of unique in that sphere. It's, it's kind of a protectionism movement to just kind of not name your competitors and that kind of thing. He doesn't mind doing it. So um, I don't know. You're a fan of rap music. I love Logic, the rapper, and he always talks about showing love instead of hate, and I thought that was kind of interesting. Anyways, definitions. Uh, there's two that we really need to define here. The first is aging in place. Basically, it's the ability to live in one's own home and community safely, independently, and comfortably for your entire lifespan, regardless of your age, income, ability level. So the notion of the starter home, did you ever grow up thinking that uh, you needed a starter home to like you know, your, your first stop before you moved into your next, uh, your next home? Um, so I don't think about my living needs now like that, but when I was growing up, I remember my parents talking about that and that we were in a starter home and I was like, starter to what? <laughs> what yeah. does that mean? Exactly. It's an archaic notion. Like you start off in this one thing and then as soon as your needs change, you move into something else. Aging in place is kind of a new um, way of thinking about design and architecture and that type of thing where I want to say living conditions, but that's not right. Your home evolves with you. I'll just use one small example. My uh, mom has been in a wheelchair for two years now and they installed things to make her home more uh, accessible to her so she didn't have to leave. So chairlifts, that type of thing, no crazy elevators, but, and they converted one of the main floor offices to a bedroom. So I uh, think small things like that. And there's lots more ways of designing your buildings like that right from the start, but that's what aging in place is. The second definition is missing middle. So missing middle is very, very common and hot topic right now in planning and design and architecture circles. It's basically any development that's caught kind of between low density, so single family, semi-detached duplexes, row housing, and apartment buildings that are over eight stories, so towers with uh, gyms as amenities. Typically, the missing middle is referring to anything between three to eight stories in height, and the reason that it's missing is because really nobody builds in this range anymore. It's often not financially feasible to build, so builders stick to either smaller, that has smaller construction costs, or bigger, which has higher profit yields. So um, it's way more complicated than I just made it sound, but that's generally what the missing middle is. There's lots of good resources 
resources online that I would just recommend you Google. <laughs> and uh, now let's go talk to somebody shaping our cities. Today on our podcast, we have Alkram Devani. He is a placemaker in Calgary, and he was just named one of Calgary's top 40 under 40, which is so exciting. Uh, I find that the people who are movers and shakers and really influencing the way our cities grow often end up in those lists. So congratulations. Thank you for the congrats. It's a top 40 is a funny thing because like self notoriety is one of those really interesting things when you have, you know, big teams, but you get to stand in front of everybody and they celebrate you and you pat yourself on the back. So it's a little weird. You don't want to downplay it. But at the same time, it's truly an honor to be recognized in the city that I was, you know, born and raised in. So thank you for that. And thank you for having me. Obviously, talking about um, urban stuff is always exciting for me because I'm always learning and I'm not a planner by trade. So I'm super grateful to be here. Yeah, and uh, so when I was doing a deep dive in your background, I saw that you have your real estate license. You're also the co-founder of Round Square. Uh, you've been a part of multiple development companies. Uh, you're an instructor at the University of Calgary, the co-founder of Chroma, which I'd love to learn a little bit more about. It seems like you're trying to make accessing housing easier. And then a guest lecturer at Berkeley, too. And funny story. Not well, funny to me. Uh, you at one point started a clothing brand with your friends. Uh, that was kind of like streetwear style, which was really cool. And my brother-in-law did the same thing. And you both chose like French style names that gave honor to Canada too. Cool. For a good friend of mine, um, like 15, I, I feel I when I say the years, I'm like, I'm not old. But you say the years, you're like, holy shit, that is old. Because like my students in my class are like 21. And I was like, what is it like to be 21? And I never feel like I'm old, but yeah, as, as I say that, I feel older. But anyway, so yeah, like 15 years ago, a good friend of mine uh, named Tung Vo, he's uh, one of the most talented folks that I know who now lives in Vancouver, um, was like super into fashion. And so he opened a store called Sankla. Uh, and he brought like, I don't know if you know APC, but he brought APC jeans to Calgary like 15 years ago, which was like crazy, like for being, you know, that far ahead of people. And he was super talented where he basically realized that he would just like make custom fitted leather jackets for folks as they kind of come through the door. And so that was like tongues like amazing skill set but he could design anything and so the store grew and he was doing amazing and then i think he just was like too big for this city and too early for this city eventually moved to to vancouver has been there the entire time and you know he was a creative director at wings and horns reigning champ which recently sold to aritzia he was at arcteric and now he's actually the lead designer for haven which started in edmonton and now is obviously canada and global so kind of ended up back at alberta you know, story there. And the the brothers from Haven are also really, really incredible. And their story is pretty amazing. So that was something that I always got to cut my creative teeth on. I didn't have the ability to create anything. I just always was a big fan. And so to be able to kind of dabble there was always really fun just to have that outlet. Um, so yeah, and then, you know, all those other things you mentioned are just experiences that I've been fortunate to kind of be a part of. Getting asked to go speak at the UC Berkeley program was pretty cool pre, pre-pandemic, just before everything kind of shut down um, and got to go speak to the master's uh, um, students that were in real estate development and environmental design. And, you know, those are those are programs that I actually thought about taking myself and still think about taking. So to be able to like, someone to pay me to go and speak to them was kind of just like weird life experience where those kind of things are really monumental and really mean something to me so yeah 
it's uh, nice when you have a creative community that you get to work with in multiple different areas, uh, whether it's the students you get to be, get involved with, but and also your friends that clearly are doing some pretty rad stuff. <laughs> you know, like I've been a, I've been into sneakers and hip hop and, and music as a kid and to like always try to figure out how that not only like defines me as a person, but how does it play a role in my life and how does it show up in the way that I want to represent myself. And so I've been really lucky to kind of stay true to that. And I've avoided putting on the suit and kind of like walking that line for a very long time. And it's almost kind of to the point where if I if I'm not wearing my toque or my hat and I walk into meetings now, it's like, well, dude, where's your toque? And it's like, I don't know. I just didn't wear it today. But like I, I teach. So I teach at the university, too, which, again, incredibly honored and humbled to be able to do that because I'm not a professor. I don't have my master's in education. I'm just like a, a kid from Calgary who, who was interested in real estate and then was fortunate enough to be around some incredible people that have taught me about planning, about people, about impacts and how cities grow. And so I started with like, I want to make money and I want to flip a house like everybody else. And the best way to do that is to get my real estate license. And then, you know, I've I've been lucky enough to now realize like, wow, like some of the things that we do can have um, monumental impact into how people live within these communities in both a negative and positive way. And I feel like I've got to see both sides of the spectrum. Yeah, you know, uh, I guess I, I was just saying I've been really fortunate to work with some incredible people. Yes, I was talking about how I got invited to participate in conversations um, about established areas redevelopment at the city of Calgary. And one of the guest speakers I had in my university course is like, he was talking about how he remembers um, I walked into the meeting and I was 10 minutes late and it was like all the developers in the city. And I came in with like, he's like this crazy scarf and your toque and like a coffee in hand and we're all there on time and you're just like 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 laughing at us and, and I was like I, I wasn't laughing at you I was so nervous like I but, but like I went to the coffee shop first to kind of cool my nerves but it's interesting how those impressions you know come across differently for people and so I was trying to be myself I wasn't really trying to make an impression and now that's kind of stuck with me and it's given me the ability to always kind of remember to walk my authentic path regardless of kind of where the industry moves so yeah pretty cool I was just going to say creative visionaries are often the ones that uh, look disheveled and uh, kind of walk in late to meetings and that kind of thing. Both Mariah and I are constantly late for things. I don't think we uh, probably walked in with as much confidence as you did into that meeting in a lot of our circumstances, but you are the second guest in a row that mentioned being a placemaker. Um, I'd like to hear what your definition of being a placemaker is. Yeah, so, uh, you know, for for me, I would say placemaking is about people uh, first. And so I've learned a lot about, you know, architecture was was something I was very passionate about. I'm, I'm, I'm married an architect who's taught me a lot about architecture, but I knew very little about urban design and about human behavior and how people move and how, you know, building could be beautiful, but its spaces in between can be really rough and its edges can be really tough and how it can kind of restrict the type of activities that, you know, we might want to see taking place in there. And so I quickly learned, you know, for me personally, placemaking was about uh, people first, not buildings first, and was about 
how we continuously stay involved in those environments. And so one of the things I really struggle about with urban design and architecture is the lack of lifespan of, of how people continue to engage and evolve within those spaces. And so if you, if you build a beautiful park, it's like people will come and they may come for the first five years. But if we, if we start to see patterns about how people continuously change and evolve and use that space, how do we continue to contribute in that? And so I, I find that there's these gaps about you know whose responsibility is it to ensure that those things continue to thrive as we as people continue to change how we use spaces. And so you know, when I think about placemaking, it's the evolution of how people move through these places that we, you know, build, construct, or have a hand in. So I feel like that either answered the question I was going to ask or ties beautifully into it. <laughs> how did you get involved with Infill? Uh, so we call it Infill in Edmonton, but uh, we, you call it redevelopment in Calgary, I believe. So how did you first get involved and why did you choose missing middle style housing and commercial projects? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I did anything out of like a ton of intention aside from the simple goal of like wanting to wanting to be a real estate person and make a return. And so um, my brother, when I was in university, had started a development company, um, uh, a building company, actually, that was building kind of out in the suburbs. And they were doing like million dollar plus homes in like Elbow Valley Estates, kind of like, I don't know where in Edmonton, maybe like South Edmonton, but but even bigger, slightly like larger acreage style kind of place. And, you know, I watched them do that. And he actually started really early in the inner city, but only did a few projects, sold that company and then picked up and left. And so when I graduated from the University of Calgary with my marketing degree, the first thing I was like, you know, when I was in university the whole time, all I wanted to do was get out. I think you probably heard why, well, you know, I've told this story. I was had my real estate license when I was 18. I got paid cash to kind of sit open houses. I never sold a single house throughout, you know, my tenure as a university student, but I got to see the city and, and really kind of engage with people in real estate and understand their preferences and, and really just learn about how people move and, and kind of how far these communities were starting to get. And so um, when I graduated, I wanted to pay for my degree. I went and got a job downtown. I, I tried to put on like a suit and uh, I went through the training program and like two weeks after like going into the training program, I just realized like I wasn't prepared to do this. But you know, I felt like the return on investment for my degree was I was capable of getting a job and I wanted that job to pay for my education. But I quickly learned like the the years I'd have to put there, I couldn't I wouldn't be able to do it. And so I unfortunately quit that job pretty quickly and um, connected with my brother again to say, hey, how do you feel about us doing you know, something in the established neighborhoods, you know, mostly just an infill, not a lot of architecture with really the main objective of trying to return uh, an investment. And so, you know, that's kind of how I got started. I met my wife, she would laugh at our projects and be like, why are you guys designing those things? Like, those are awful. And I was like, wow, you don't know what you're talking about. These are great. And at the time, like I didn't have a very broad lens into architecture, nor did I knew like design and art really played a role in, in, in the, in the kind of whole you know, gamut of real estate and development. And she really opened my eyes about the opportunities that existed within architecture. And then I went like heavy into architecture, probably too heavy. Uh, and then now I find myself here in this place where, you know, it, it, I'm really interested in, in balance. And so that's kind of how I got into infill, kind of very semi-detached, the, the, the common route, I think, for a lot of infill developers. And, you know, one thing leads to another. And, and now, you know, we're building 212 units in Winnipeg and the East Exchange with the Heritage kind of preservation. So it's pretty sweet. 
Do you remember which uh, was the first development that your wife got involved in? Yeah, um, the outside was still ugly because she never drew it, but the inside was pretty cool, right? Like there's things that we we did in the city that I think like, you know, people were really impressed by or kind of remembered us up by, but like glass railings were like the most common railing and they kind of blew up. I don't know if you remember like the glass walls or... And so uh, I, she, she brought glass to us as a railing solution um, at least like... 10 to 12 years ago and so that was the first time we had put in like a glass railing system and then I remember like just she was getting tired of it we were getting tired of it and so the guys that were installing our glass railings were like metal metal guys and 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 we had kind of talked to them about a metal screen and like what could they do on their CNC machines and so we built these like perforated metal screens that she would kind of CAD the patterns on and that became like the thing that we were known for. And so we used to put metal screens in every single one of our places. And this is the thing, like, you know, we would challenge ourselves so much, almost to the point where it wasn't even commercially viable. But like, you know, any other developer would have took one screen pattern and applied it to like all of their developments where we would stay up at night, like trying to make each one different. And now like I see those screen patterns everywhere, but I feel like you know, most of the OG Calgary folks would be like, yeah, they, they definitely, you know, started that. And now, you know, obviously we're tired of it and I don't even know what's next, but that was a big deal for us back then. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it must be really nice to have uh, someone that you can talk to 24 seven about development and uh, projects. I, my partner's in finance and so he'll, he'll listen to me, but it, the passion isn't there in the same way if he was an architect. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of like the gift and the curse, right? Because like my, me and my wife, my wife now asks me questions about like design stuff. And I'm just like, I I do not have the bandwidth to answer those questions anymore because I'm just so like exhausted by the time I come home. Like the last thing I want to talk about is like another space plan or floor plan or like, you know, whether or not those things are being efficiently done. And, you know, me and my brother are obviously partners as well. And so we talk every single day. And so sometimes, you know, it's about it's it's tough because you want to find that balance. But um, I've become less interested in architecture and even in design than I've ever been in my entire life. And it's a real challenging thing for me, right? Because like, I've always been so interested in these things. But like, as I get more interested in, in sustainability and kind of human uh, behavior and, and trying to be a leader and advocate of those things, it's like, well, then Al, do you really need 150 pairs of sneakers? Like, how am I going to go out there and tell you, like, don't do these things. But then I have this huge sneaker collection in my basement. So it's almost like hypocritical. And so it's like I'm, I'm relearning myself about how, how I can kind of be a better person and how I want to show up. And there's a level of accountability now for how that shows up in our business, at least for myself and, and how I show up as well. You said that uh, one thing often leads to another and just going through your project pages, that's kind of obvious. It seems like you started off very small scale, um, a lot of townhouse projects, some small two, three story projects. Now you're into bigger things, hundred over a hundred, over 200 unit residential towers. You got some commercial space and you expanded into Winnipeg. So what was that, what was taking that leap like and why did you want to take the leap from something that you were very clearly good at um, into taking on this big, kind of a bigger challenge? Yeah, it's funny that you say that because, well, I was at a three-hour strategic meeting about this today. It's like, 
you know, we, we, in five years, we went from building like a fourplex, which was extremely challenging for us at the time. I didn't know anything about stormwater retention systems or, you know, the structural constraints that go into these in your part three, part nine. Like I didn't know any of that stuff. So it was like overwhelming at that time. And then, you know, fast forward to today, we're talking about like hollow core block, seven story concrete buildings with like exposed ducting and venting. And like, uh, I, I'm, I'm sitting in structural meetings and I'm like, what am I even doing here? Like, I have no idea what you guys are even talking about. And so it, it, it is this weird kind of um, thing. And I would say we probably grew too fast uh, for our own good. And, you know, if I could go back, I probably would have went a little bit deeper into you know, what, what we knew really, really well, um, which was kind of like we were becoming really, really proficient in kind of great oriented housing. And so one of our key objectives and strategies like for the next five years is now to become not only like extremely proficient in that, but figure out how we can help other jurisdictions and cities unlock more of that. Because I truly believe like one of the easiest paths to establish areas redevelopment is through ground orientation, uh, not through these big kind of buildings, not through, you know, mid rise. And so I think as cities kind of figure out how do we create more equitable housing, accessible housing solutions, I think ground orientation could solve a lot of that and could do it a lot quicker with less vitriol. And so we, 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 we did those things because, you know, opportunity oftentimes is the death of focus. But I'm super grateful for each of these opportunities that we've had because I've learned so much and it's brought a lot of clarity to us and kind of our vision and where we see ourselves going as an organization because I think there's a need for both housing typologies. And, and one of the things I would say is like, once you get into kind of that mixed mixed mid-rise development, there's a lot of companies that bang those things out fairly quickly. Uh, and, you know, they've been doing it the same way for, for a long time. And so I'm tired of seeing the same outcomes. I want to see better outcomes. And that's why we continue to have our foot in the door. But I think our real, real impact will be kind of on this kind of low, low density ground orientation is where, you know, I'd love to kind of continue to to get deeper. Nice. So we're not going to see any round square towers, 30 story towers popping up anytime soon then. <laughs> yeah, no, no, definitely not. Not something I've ever been passionate about. And I mean, I've, I've seen pretty cool towers. I've seen the evolution of them. I see the need from in other countries and other parts of the world. But um, for me personally, like that's just not something that I've ever been, you know, super driven and interested in. And, you know, it, you, you, I could sit here and tell you that mid rise is like, you know, is is eighteen or fifteen stories? Like we could have those conversations, but I don't I don't see us in the next you know near term future getting above you know mid rise definition in North America. So you talked a lot about human design and, and ground oriented development. Why do you think it plays such a crucial part in communities? Well, so I think I would start off by saying I just think it's one of these kind of missing housing typologies in in many cities throughout North America, and I think. You know, post-World War II, again, not being a planner, but what I've read or what I understand is like there was this kind of, you know, the vehicle mass exodus of people coming back home, wanting to settle down and having families and saying, well, I guess we're going to go out. Like, here's this amazing opportunity for us to build homes for these folks. And so you look at some of the wartime bungalows and kind of what they look like and what they were servicing. Um, and then, you know, the suburbs kind of showed up and ruined everything when it comes to kind of street planning and grid planning and how that all kind of played out. And so I just feel like 
like we had, you know, 50 years of development that probably didn't really serve as the the most sustainable way to kind of house families. And so, you know, I had the opportunity to travel to kind of Copenhagen and kind of did most of that kind of Scandinavian region and um, Sweden, we did Malmo and I was just like blown away by like how tight knit close and how all those families live within very, very dense. Like, I don't think there was anything, I didn't even see a single family home the entire time we were there, right? Cause everything is truly mid rise. And so, I was really inspired by that. And I think like if we can figure out how to create more of those typologies and, and kind of, you know, what I say are opportune cities are like Edmonton, Calgary, Saskatchewan, Hamilton, secondary tertiary markets that haven't seen the growth of like Vancouver, which is struggling immensely, you know, because they basically went out and let folks build mega mansions, folks build towers, but there's nothing else. And now the mega mansions are really nervous about what, you know, missing middle looks like. And so I think in in our cities that are still quite young and, and trying to find their identities, there's this enormous opportunity to create housing typologies that could house, you know, a number of different focuses and families being one of them. But like, there's this incredible opportunity when we talk about like ground oriented suites that could be fully accessible for aging in place and multi-stage families where you could have uh, aging in place. And so I, I'm, I'm, I really believe that form has a tremendous opportunity uh, in terms of the people that it can serve. So. I want to talk a little bit more about that, but uh, yeah, the th- I love that you mentioned Copenhagen and, and Amsterdam too. I think of them as cities that are basically everything is built to four stories or four to six stories they have no towers and they basically uh, live on top of each other without issue but anyways I wanted to go back design is a very central component to what you do at round square going through your project list on your website looks like a bunch of design competitions to be honest they're all really beautiful but it's like you mentioned it's more than just design is more than just the exterior of the building is that right Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, like I said, early in the career, and it's a short career, and it's a short company still, like, we really felt like we had to lead by architectural excellence. And now when I think about how we invest dollars, I'm less, I'm less inclined, like to spend money just on architecture, I'm more inclined to spend money on what people's needs are. And so if I assess that the needs of people within these communities is X, X, Y, Z, and like we have this conversation all the time about like amenities, like do we need to build fitness facilities, co-working spaces, all of those things? Because I just still have this hard time believing that the usage rates will ever really increase regardless of the scenario. Like even through COVID, I don't think the usage rates were that amazing of these common amenity spaces. They were great, but I don't think they were excellent. And so for me, it's like, I don't want to cannibalize the yoga studio or the spin studio by having my own kind of spin, um, you know, facility within my building. I want to figure out how I can connect our residents with that business and kind of create a mutually beneficial relationship. And so back to your question was like, we led with design, we led with architecture. And yes, it's not just about the outside of the building, but now I'm more interested in the actual data about human behavior, how people move through spaces, what are some of the emerging trends that we're seeing with technology that are impacting the way people shop, eat, you know, leave their homes. And so one of the things we've been pretty vocal about is like, I'm not building a space for you to feel like you never have to leave that building or that home. I'm intentionally building a space that is 
you know, your retreat is where you feel safe. Uh, you feel like you're at home. But my, my objective is still to make you connect with people because I think that is like where we all get satisfaction and our greatest kind of, you know, sense of well-being. And so um, I took my daughter to the Science Center last week and they have this exhibit and it's like crazy. Um, one of the stats it says, it says, it's like this crazy immersive like experience about being like the human life and from birth to kind of through adolescence through adulthood there's the stats there's so many stats that are mind-blowing but the one that really sticks out to me was it said you know majority of humans will spend six months of their lives in traffic but we only laugh for 120 days in our lifetime and so you just think about that it's like man that's so that's so sad like and that's why you're laughing when you come into meetings a little bit late, I suppose. You're just trying to catch up for some of that time. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> oh, just trying, yeah. to, just trying to create laughter for folks. There you like, go. There he is. There's that guy that's late again. Where that silly hat. It's uh, just, you're just a healthy guy. I get it. So uh, I want to talk about, I want to dig back into Europe a little bit because I also share the same passion that you do for um, the Scandinavian countries, especially. They're designed exactly how you were talking about. The spaces in their homes... They don't have everything, but everything is found in close walking proximity or close travel proximity to where they are. Their homes are basically just their uh, sleeping quarters and uh, basic living spaces and their private space. But you talk a lot about how picky are you with your sites that you uh, that you select for your developments. You talk a lot about inner city and uh, redevelopment of existing areas that probably have some of these kind of third spaces already in place. Yeah, hundred percent. Like we're we're obviously keen on using existing infrastructure, whether that be you know the pipes in the ground or the the bike lanes or the roads or uh, the networks that are already in place. And so yeah, we're we're pretty particular about about the communities that we work in. But I'd also say we're like we're also looking for complex sites or complex challenges. And so if I go into a neighborhood and I recognize like, oh, there's no coffee shop here. Like the first thing I'm doing is like getting on the phone with potential coffee guys that I know that are or women that I'm saying, hey, like, are you interested in a coffee shop in this location? We're three, four years out, but like, what does success look like for you? And so like, going into spaces with a preconceived notion of like what we would say our hypothesis is of what is missing how can we help contribute that to this story and then obviously like knowing that that influences outcome and this is like you know this is a thing we get accused of all the time it's like oh man they're just evil developers now that know how to speak the language and it's like yeah we're, we're definitely more sophisticated than we ever were and we're also uh you know visible minorities which is tough because you can't say it's the old white guy just trying to get super rich uh we're not we're not that right and so people get a little frustrated because they're like oh those guys are just really good at appearing as if they care but they don't care and what i really challenge is like no, I care, but I also care about returning an investment so our so our business can continually tr- attract investment and make those that were before us who have, you know, tons of money and looking to reinvest it interested in what we're doing because I want that money to come back to these communities and help kind of, you know, bring infrastructure, bring investment. And so this is kind of the conversations that I have all the time is like, you know, we're, we're not the evil developer, but I do strongly believe that like we can make commercial viability happen with social responsibility. And that's kind of the balance that we weigh. And sometimes I think, you know, we're, we're walking a tightrope. We veer one way or another, but ultimately like we have a choice. And, and this is what I tell everyone. Like I get asked every day to look at suburban sites all the time and it's so much easier. It's so much cheaper. And I know there's uptick. And so like if I really was just like here to get paid, I could do it in a lot of different ways that would be significantly easier. 
I don't know where the stereotype came from the big bad evil developer, but something and idea that we're trying to focus on is changing that conversation to our local entrepreneurs that are investing in our city and rebuilding it and creating spaces that you want to be in and that you'll actually interact with your community in. Um, so I haven't found out the formula yet. If you figure it out before me, please share that. <laughs> but we can collaborate on that. So I don't think this stigma is like misplaced or misguided because if you think historically about how our cities were built, they were built by really, really rich, older white men who did an exceptional job at convincing, you know, stakeholders about why these communities were valuable. And so like if I was to name, you know, the most 10 successful development companies in Calgary, I bet you nine of 10 of those would be all white white men and then, i mean like it is what it is like we we just have to acknowledge like that that's where we're coming from and so there's a bit of an uphill battle there's a bit of opportunity and there's a bit of those guys still wanting to hold on to what they've done and wanting their voices to be heard and you know wanting their 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 perspectives to be to be listened to and so i have compassion honestly for both sides of the story more so than i ever have because oftentimes i was like super vitriol about like fuck the suburbs and I don't care about those guys and I don't want to invest in new growth and they're ruining our cities. But as you begin to like be a little bit more thoughtful and, and, and are willing to kind of li- listen, there are some things there. And I think if we can kind of look at what, what are collaborative solutions, like you talk about your municipal development plan and how, you know, you guys have this 20, I think you said 25% is Edmonton's goal. We hit 25%. Our new goal is 50. Okay. Okay. So similar to Calgary, like 50, 50 growth. And, you know, last year we were 90% growth within new growth area areas and so like i'm not smart enough to know but like if if we're 90 percent today in new growth and only 10 percent in established areas like for us to get to 50 50 with the outline plan targeted date that they set like i think we're 10 years away or whatever like it's gonna take a lot of reverse and and we we all know that that's probably not gonna happen but like how do we at least start to shift the conversation slightly about how we can make this a little bit more feasible? And so, um, yeah, I, I think that's one of the things I've learned is like, there's there's no need to be vitriol. There, there's a lot of need to kind of have c- compassion and collaborate with folks, even oftentimes who you don't see eye to eye with. Yeah, well, I think that's uh, an important part of a why we wanted to have you on the podcast was to create more links between Calgary and Edmonton and share tips and tricks on how to grow our cities. But also, it's important to like conversate with those who are building in the suburbs. They've learned things that we need to learn from, and we've learned things that they need to learn from. As we switch to 50-50 with Infill and Greenfield, they're going to have to play in both fields. So how do we make them successful, too? It's, I think you build great cities when everyone's pushing in the same direction. Yeah, couldn't, couldn't agree more. Like Our Greenfield developers are significantly more capitalized than our, than our established areas developers like you know if brookfield said hey we're coming to the established areas like although that's a huge threat to me that's a massive win because we just got like one of the biggest real estate developers in the world to now realize that there's investments in the established neighborhood that are viable sustainable and achievable for them and so that definitely i couldn't i couldn't agree more like that's that's the messaging that i think we need to talk about it's just exciting to see you also build such interesting and community-oriented spaces uh, now you're in Calgary. You mentioned Winnipeg earlier. What made you choose Winnipeg? I had met uh, Johanna from 546-7896 uh, Architecture. She spoke at the Detox um, here, an incredible organization in Calgary, which brings like design and 
urban and 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 so i i went to this talk and i heard johanna talking and she was talking about all the things that i was learning about and cared about and so i sent her a message she didn't respond and i was like oh like whatever like architects are so like full of themselves and so i just kind of ignored it and then she messaged me back like oh i'm so sorry i didn't see it like i'm coming to calgary tomorrow do you want to meet for coffee and i was like sure so we met for coffee um, you know, they're working on the platform project, which is the Parkade, uh, and also has like this innovation center built into it. And it was super cool at the time. I remember seeing it being like really inspired by it. Anyway, so me and my brother decided we were going to fly out to Winnipeg to meet them. We did that, hired them for a bunch of Calgary projects. And then they had this opportunity that they thought we would be interested in. And, you know, I was, I had traveled, I had never been to Winnipeg and I was like, who goes to Winnipeg? Like, nobody and i remember like i think i read like their national or whatever their bird was like a mosquito and i hate mosquitoes and so i was like i'm never going to winnipeg but like yeah it's actually like an incredible city i actually think it's probably closely parallel to like edmonton i don't like it i didn't like edmonton i don't know if i like edmonton still but as a kid i always thought edmonton was like not very pretty but also just had like this incredible art scene and so like I would say Winnipeg has this undertone like art culture that kind of like reminded me of Edmonton, but it had this incredible exchange and um, heritage community, which, you know, was, was absolutely fascinating to me. And I would just like spend hours walking around and learning about all those buildings. And so when the opportunity came up, like I, we had been flying there more often and this is just like, you know, a perfect way for us to get in there with a partner who is from there and brought us into that. So, yeah. So, so many shots fired to cities. Uh, <laughs> when was the last time you came to Edmonton? Because Ryan and I are going to take you out for drinks when you're here next. Uh, I came to Edmonton for the Kanye West concert uh, was the last time I was there. So what would that have been? That would have been, I think it would have been Yeezus or whatever when, when maybe he was kind of like floating above the everybody. But yeah. It was at Rogers, yeah. wasn't it? it? It was at the new arena. Yeah, that was the last time. Oh, uh, I might be lying. Actually, that was probably the last time that I actually like, you know, went downtown and had a coffee or a cocktail at like Woodwork, went to Little Red Brick and kind of like just like loosely walked around. But um, yeah, that's that's the last time I remember. So it's been it's been a long time. Okay, so I'm going to tell you a couple things. Red Brick, our first, uh, on our first episode of the podcast, uh, Tegan Martin-Drysdale, she is one of the owners. And then our second open episode of the podcast, we had uh, Jason Civicse. Uh He works for the city of Edmonton right now, and he created the GBA Plus and Equity Toolkit. He's from Winnipeg. And so I feel like once COVID is like less COVID-y, we have to have like a big podcast party where everyone gets to meet. <laughs> Yeah, I'd love to do. I, I've I've seen Jason on 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 Instagram, but yeah, Little Red Brick. I use them as like a use case all the time when I try to like get people to convert like housing in kind of like or non areas or neighborhoods where commercial exists because I think they've done a pretty fantastic job from a planning perspective of really changing that part of the of Edmonton. Yeah, well, and like I think it's like three or four blocks away from that. They just opened up a new mixed use project that uh, I'm going to visit in about a week. I'm so excited about it. So I'll send you the, the information about it after. Cool. <laughs> yeah, I like, so I, I also like had the chance to sit on a panel with, um, that you put me on actually with Chris, who I met, I think he was your last guest. And so I follow kind of what Belgian is doing 
looks like super awesome kind of heritage challenging sites and so no i i i'm I'm talking shit about edmonton just for fun but i think it's like it's a it's a city that we actually submitted for that i don't know if you guys remember they had that competition for that site um we didn't win uh but i think a calgary company still won um okay (laughs) yeah well i do but i i I don't know i i don't remember the neighborhood but it was a cool site like an urban kind of ish reestablished neighborhood site um near Blatchford, I want to say, like up up that way, but yeah. Yeah, Ryan could talk your ear off about that competition and that's I also submitted. I also didn't win. Um, I don't I don't remember a Calgary company winning, but yeah, we'll fact check it after it. <laughs> no, they did they won for sure. It was Studio North, because I remember talking to the guys with um they called it plot developments because it was like Studio North. Yeah. So um, let's talk more about what have you seen, uh, how have you seen infill and redevelopment grow in Calgary over the past five plus years that you've been in the development industry? What barriers have you seen kind of be unbarriered or <laughs> I don't know how to say that. I think like our, our planning department in the city of Calgary um, in the last five years has completely shifted its kind of culture from being this kind of like stamp checker and kind of like stopping like like basically a group that checks you and balances you and more about like kind of stopping development that like or being kind of this gatekeeper to kind of being a collaborative partner and so that's been a huge cultural shift i think that's been um you know a lot of work of a planning and some really key people at the city who've come in to really like create that environment so that's been really really refreshing Obviously, I think like the the creation of our row house district, which I know, um, right, we talked about offline, has changed the face of our inner city in less than five years. Like what was never there before now is like everywhere. And I think Calgary is actually a leader probably in that missing middle kind of low density typology throughout Canada because I haven't seen it. Um, executed or a district like this that exists in any jurisdiction that's kind of been implemented and where the city's now implemented it, you know, in in entire neighborhoods and areas. And so I'm really proud uh, about our city for taking that on and kind of continuing to see that out. Um, And so that's been really exciting. The challenges are the same, unfortunately, that we're seeing in every other jurisdiction, right? Like, there's a lack of certainty on the community side and on the developer side of what outcome looks like. There was this idea that we were going to put out this guidebook and this guidebook was going to guide best planning principles and policies for how we build established neighborhoods. And then the richest communities in our city came out and said, hold on a second. And, and you know, and it became this very political vehicle that kind of stalled out a little bit. And so much work work went into that it was just a bit of a shame but i know they've they they've got a strategy to keep moving it forward and and so yeah like you know i think we've we've seen this tremendous amount of kind of slow awesome kind of forward momentum um and i think it just takes time like i don't think you can kind of like you know as much as we've seen examples in kind of portland and minneapolis and i know you guys have started to change some of your parking minimums but like we need to show a little bit of wins and a little bit of community kind of good will for us to continue seeing that change happen and so as that starts to incur and they start to see investment in how these things actually provide value to you know families and 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 people who live within those communities and ultimately like change cycles start to happen people get frustrated they don't want to be in those traffic areas they're not into choosing alternate modes of transportation and they start to make other choices about where they want to live and so that will start to kind of play itself out um where I think we struggle for myself is 
we obviously have an affordable housing crisis. We continue to talk about complete communities, but we don't have policies in place to really drive complete communities. There's no evidence of kind of public-private partnerships to kind of solve affordable housing. It's really all in the public sector, and then the public sector doesn't know how to get the private sector involved, and then the federal government says, but I'll give you billions of dollars if you guys can figure it out, but no one can, and so there's this kind of like, you know, we have levels of government that don't get along, and, and that's really challenging, especially being here in Alberta with, you know, the UCP and our and our, and our friend Jason Kenney, and so um, it's uh, it's a lot of vitriol and, and, a, and a lot less collaboration, which we need more of. Yeah, hopefully with uh, our recent elections, both in Calgary and Edmonton, um, new faces create new spaces for conversation around those tables. Because I know in Edmonton, uh, Don Iveson, our previous mayor, his big platform issues were transit, infill, and affordable housing. And I think he did a really good job on moving on a lot of those platforms. Uh, but affordable housing still needs so much attention. And it's just something that the province hasn't prioritized, which has been really frustrating. Yeah, yeah. And I, like, I mean, you're right. I'm not paying enough homage to the fact that like our council has, you know, five women, which is the most in history. We have our first black male counselor in history, um, and first woman mayor in history. And so like massive, massive wins uh, from, you know, a diverse kind of voice platform. And some, some of the folks on our council are like in their 30s. Like it's pretty incredible, like to have like young people who's whose voices now matter uh, and, you know, to be elected constituents and people like choosing those folks is really cool. Uh, I don't know uh, Amarjeet so he very well. I've heard he's, I've heard he's an incredible person. So I'm really curious to see how, you know, that works with them and, and pushing hopefully Alberta forward and being the face of change. I, I actually saw on LinkedIn that you had uh, the mayor come to the class that you teach at the University of Calgary. That is a massive flex. And how did that go? <laughs> yeah, so it's funny, like, obviously, she'd just been elected 10 days in. And I just said, you know, Councillor Gondak, can you just like surprise my kids and, you know, join us via Zoom? And she was like, yeah, totally. She actually helped build the Westman Center. Uh, so the real estate program was also initially helped put on by by her work prior to her being a counselor. So yeah, it was great, man. I think the kids were like, wow, like, you know, yeah, ma- massive flex and, and kind of hopefully respected me slightly more. But she's a force and so i'm i'm really excited because she's unapologetic in things that she believes in and so it'll it'll be really interesting right because i've seen her um i've seen her push and when she pushes she pushes and so one of the things i've learned about you know you know being in politics oftentimes you got to be able to bend and so you have to be able to understand when you bend and when you don't want to break and and so you know when you get people who are very, very intelligent and, you know, Marinenci was extremely intelligent, sometimes it's difficult to get through to those folks when they don't believe in what you believe in. And so I, I'll be really interested to see how she's able to kind of go through this with, you know, being very passionate, being very brilliant and smart when it comes to so many of the things that we're talking about. So, uh, you know, in terms of the most qualified candidate without question, uh, now the question is, is like, city building is about collaboration and sometimes that's collaborating with folks who don't see eye to eye with you on certain things so i will be very very uh interested to see how that plays out that's a really good way to kind of dismount here i think what we typically ask is our guests have a call to action at the very end what would you say is your call to action here before we uh, get going for the day i think it's just like getting involved i would say one of the things i've noticed about us is like 
we think that by by not saying anything, we're supportive of the things that are happening within our communities. And so like so many of my friends will be like, yeah, we love what you're doing. And it's like, yeah, but you never say that. And But I get a hundred people who come and say they hate what we're doing. And so it's like, if you could take the time out, if you really care about, you know, the growth or where things are going, or you're passionate about these things, it's like, get involved, find a way to kind of make sure your voice is heard, because it goes a really, really long way. Um, you know, we had our largest development in Inglewood was like we had 30,000 people who had signed a petition against us to kind of stop that development. I thought we were going to lose. I couldn't sleep going into there. And a woman showed up um, and she was a woman who had kind of accessibility issues and she she was in a wheelchair and she spent six hours waiting to speak in favor. And like she she dropped the mic. She basically just said like, the community of Inglewood thinks that they're they're you know they should be preserved and they're the community that everyone wants to be in. She's like, I just want to make it completely clear that anyone with accessibility challenges could never live in your community, because I cannot access your buildings, your heritage buildings. I cannot access your steps. I cannot actually you know function as a human being. And so when we see these opportunities for these people to invest in these communities that not only improve their buildings but their the streetscape and bring the money that we need. Why are we saying no to that? And so I was just like sitting there, like I didn't even know who she was, didn't know she was going to show up, but we were going to lose. Like we were going in there like, oh my God, this is going to be very, very bad to like unanimous except for one person. Like we had the, the local MP of the city of Calgary, who was a federal MP at the time, like come out and make a video about how he does not support this single development within Calgary. Like it was crazy. It was just bananas. How many people? That's brutal. Yeah. And like this whole petition had 30,000 people. And of those 30,000, like 19,000 didn't even live in the city of Calgary. <laughs> And so it was it was so crazy, but so hyped that I really was just scared. And like it took one person who had a really thoughtful understanding of why she felt like these communities needed to evolve that changed the whole outcome. Like, that's what I truly believe. And so that that would be my my thing is like our voice matters and and you have an opportunity to use your voice. So please do. Yeah, you nailed that. So I think that's a good place to leave off. Thanks so much for joining us and uh, spending the last hour with us. This was really good um, for all of our listeners in Calgary. Hopefully they, you know, rolled their eyes and said, yeah, we already know about Round Square. But for those that are in Edmonton, I hope they learned something about uh, about what Round Square does and about you as a person. And we'll definitely have you back on. Alcarim, thanks very much for uh, for spending your afternoon with us. No, thank you. And I, we hope to find ourselves in Edmonton one day and I continue to have conversations with folks there. So I'll take you up on the tour someday and hopefully we'll find something that we can help contribute to your city as well. Thanks so much. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, he is a very intelligent man. He talked about a lot of things and yeah, let's get into a few of those. Yeah. First off, let's start about how much we laughed in this interview because he told this terrible fact about how we only laugh for 120 days and we spent six months in traffic. Gross. Uh, so then I went to go fact check that and he's pretty right. There's some like some articles say 190 days, some articles say 143 days, some articles say 90 days of laughing. But either way, we're spending less time laughing than we are in traffic. 
So no, I don't like that at all. It's almost a double whammy too, because um, when you're in traffic, you're probably not laughing a lot unless you're listening to this podcast while you're driving, of course, but it's probably, you know, you're in traffic and you're not laughing. So that's, you know, doubly bad instead of just laughing. It makes sense why he's always smiling and laughing then. I think the entire interview, he had a giant smile on his face too. I know. He was such a joy. Like he had just such joy in his spirit, which was great. But I think honestly, it's because he lives in a mature neighborhood and walks around a lot and like actually gets to enjoy his neighborhood and spends less time in traffic. So good plug. Good plug. There you go. (laughs) I'm not biased at all. Anyways, (laughs) let's talk about Calgary's row house district. Um, So Alcrim and I talked about it a little offline and then we went a bit more into it into the episode. So in 2014, Calgary allowed row houses and secondary suites in duplexes and row houses. Their zone is called RTG. Um, And it seems like it's great. seems like it's working. Every time I go to Calgary, there are more row houses and we're just behind the curve in that style of development here. We had UCRH or Urban Character Row House for a long time that was used primarily in greenfield suburban neighborhoods um yeah and hopefully with the new zoning power renewal we'll get more row housing yeah I, I i don't think we're as far behind the curve as you think we are because um we also allow secondary suites in row housing and there's lots of row housing projects coming i can guarantee you that um now the ucrh i agree with you it's um a hilarious zone that's named after something that you think would be in the uh in an urban situation but you're right it was developed primarily for um the suburban context so yeah yeah well it's just they did it in 2014 i believe we did it 2018 they have four years more of row housing than we do and when we joke about if you zone it we will come and build it clearly that is true (laughs) yeah it's coming yeah we also talked about the westman center of real estate studies that the new mayor of calgary jody gondact helped to establish uh, well, before she was on council, which is great. I think all major cities and mid-sized cities need a real estate study center and design center and architecture school and planning school and all the other great things that help build our cities. So good on her. And that's great that she came and spoke to a class about it. Yeah. Like I said in the episode, that's a huge flex. I actually, um, I applied for a job to teach at the Westman Center for Real Estate Studies because there's lots of um, classes that they have there that they let industry come and teach. And it, it kind of bridges the gap between the theoretical and the practical, which is fantastic. So I can echo that. Um, you know, I didn't get the job, but uh, I echo that uh, it, it seems like a very good and very useful um, school. Um, we talked about uh, a few other things. Um, mayor Nenshi, I think we just said Nenshi a few times in the episode, but he's the former mayor of Calgary, three terms in Calgary. He walked away on his own terms into the sunset, a little bit more Peyton Manning than Brett Favre for all those that uh, watch football out there. And just one fun fact about him, I highly recommend everybody either look him up on Twitter, look up his Wikipedia page. There's lots of good information on both sides of the argument online, but he won the World Mayor Prize in 2014 and it was the first ever Canadian mayor to win it. That's pretty cool. Uh, 5468796 Architecture. It's a barcode. It's I don't exactly know what it stands for, but what I do know is that it's a 
big time architecture firm in Winnipeg. It's led by um, two Scandinavians that are also professors or they're professors at the U of M. So one of them, Johanna, she um, is the one that was referenced in the the interview here with Al Karim, but she was actually a professor of mine at the U of M. She was tough, but their design is unparalleled. Their website is a little bit weird. It's a long side to side scroll instead of a, a like a top to bottom scroll. It's very bizarre. It took me forever to figure it out. But they are the creme de la creme of architecture firms in Winnipeg. They design lots of cool buildings. I'm very happy to hear that they've that they've come out here. So uh, yeah, definitely check out their um, website as well. Scroll sideways. So before we leave today, I want to shout out our dedicated listener, Jim, who pointed out an error that I made in a few episodes ago. I mistakenly said that Fox Burger, which is a place that I uh, frequent, I've been to lots, I love, I said that it's in Beverly when it's actually in the Highlands. Oops. Thank you so much for catching that, Jim. And if anyone else ever finds an error in anything that we say, please let us know. Yeah. Well, and thanks so much for listening, Jim. Uh, we'll see you next week. See you next week.